0: Lord, we do uh, agree with those prayers and do desire that you would, in fact, transform as was prayed. And we certainly don't want to just understand the details of the text, but we want to also see how you have designed it such that it's applicable to us today and that we might be able to find application from a very, very important doctrine. And We desire for clarity of mind and the illumination of your spirit that we may maximize our benefit this morning so we just commit our time to you desiring that you would have your way this morning we pray these things in jesus name okay let's take a look at the book of romans we're going to look at a new portion of a section that we already looked at so i'll give you a quick review in fact uh, verse nine where we will begin in chapter three actually gives us a review, so we'll use it to kind of catch up with where we were the last time. We had our little mini-series that we did a few weeks already in January, so we're going to go back to the book of Romans. Obviously, we won't get from verse 9 through verse 20, but that completes this portion of this subsection of the book of Romans. Kind of the concluding part of the first major subsection of the Book of Romans. And by the way, we were mentioning the trip to Israel. seems like the majority of people want to go to Rome, so we'll probably visit some of these sites, see all of these ancient first century sites that were there. Arch of Severus, Arch of Titus in the background. Colosseum is right around the corner there. But I show these mainly because this is who the letter was written to, or at least the believers that lived in Rome in the first century, capital of the empire, most important city of the first century. So believers were exposed to culture, exposed to politics, (coughs) exposed to anything important that was taking place in the empire. They lived at the heart of it in Rome. A good summary of what we've already looked at is Donald Gray Barnhouse and probably a more vivid, more explanatory introduction than I could give or review. He says in the first chapter, a horrible picture is drawn of mankind lying in the slime of depravity, vivid words, dishonoring his body and worshiping even creeping things In the second chapter, there is another horrible picture of man caught like a rat in a trap of his own making, rushing madly, seeking an escape which does not exist, dashing himself against philosophy, against ethics, against religion and its ceremonies. In the early verses of this third chapter, there is a third picture of man in vicious sophistry, seeking to argue himself out of his predicament by defaming the righteousness of God. Kind of a vivid description of what we've already seen. It's a commentary, Barnhouse's commentary in the Book of Romans. What a use of language there. Yes. Very vivid. Kind of remind you of what we've looked at already. And we are in this first major subsection called Condemnation. The bulk of the book deals with a righteous God giving righteousness to an unrighteous humanity. But before we can receive that or even recognize a need for it, Paul spends considerable time, and we've spent considerable time, a lot more than Paul did, I guess, to, to expound. <laughs> this major section, because of the nature of the human heart. And we're going to focus a little bit on that in uh, this week and next week as well. So he has to convince the audience, the reader, that we stand condemned before a righteous and holy God before our hearts are willing and receptive to solving the issue. In other words, uh, resolving the problem of unrighteousness. So we have the provision of God's righteousness running all the way through chapter 8. And chapters 9 through 11 also follow that same theme, but it more focuses on the nation of Israel. So we've already looked at verses, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 9, verse 8. And now he's going to bring the whole thing home, the guilt of all of humanity, 3, 9 through 20. And I've left off the other part because we'll look at that when we get to verse 9 there. So verse 9 is somewhat of a summary indictment, you might say. And our hearts are such, and this section is longer than some of the other sections or subsections, because in our minds we generally think, well, I'm okay. And we compare to one another, and we have a knack for suppressing the reality of where we stand. It's kind of like a little boy with a face such as this. And his mother is accusing him of eating the cake. And he says, no, not me. I did not eat the cake. Even though all the evidence points in which direction. All right. The book of Romans is laying out all this evidence. And it's as if it's before the ultimate supreme court, you might even say. And as we've been looking in the book of Romans, we've been seeing... The Book of Romans, from a perspective of the law, in fact, that's a frequent usage of the word there in in the Book of Romans, and it's as if Paul, in fact, more than as if, it's Paul laying down evidence, except not in a secular court, but he is basically laying down evidence before the ultimate judge in an ultimate court And we may follow that analogy because Paul actually uses lots of legal terms. And we're going to see some of that in the portion that we're looking at. So the analogy, in fact, this is a little bit of a review just by way of analogy. Look at verse 18. This is, you could say, something like his opening statement. And his opening statement is... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's his opening statement. All of humanity, in other words, all sinners, stand under the wrath of God. Stand condemned. Opening statement now, beginning in verse 19, we won't read through all of these verses, but now he's going to present the evidence. And the evidence he presents is primarily against the Gentiles and or, I think it's broad enough, that it includes all of humanity. Does that make sense? So we have presentation of evidence against the Gentiles, beginning verse 19 through the rest of the chapter. And what he's essentially saying is that God has adequately revealed himself to all creatures, all humanity, and all have received. That's the emphasis of these early verses. But man in general has rejected that revelation. So the revelation is adequate to make man accountable, but not adequate to save. That's the rest of the book of Romans. So... Man, he says in verse 20, is therefore without excuse. Man has received adequate revelation. Instead, man has rejected that revelation, and in rejecting that revelation, man is changed such that he experiences inward corruption and it only declines. So there's nothing in mankind that commends man to God, and there's nothing that we can do to gain righteousness. So we stand somewhat condemned. The evidence is against us. So, in chapter 2, he begins to lay out the evidence against the Jew. And some commentators start, start this a little bit later, but it makes more sense for me that it starts in verse 1 through the rest of the chapter. And he's just laying evidence. Argumentation evidence after evidence, data after data, as a lawyer would in a courtroom. And we have what we looked at uh, the last few weeks we were in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He's dealing as if the defense presents these protests. In other words, this is evidence that goes contrary to the evidence that convicts. So these are arguments of the defense. And Paul is knocking those down. In other words, this is the weakness of all of those arguments. That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And I titled that The Protest of the Jews. So it's still part of that same section. And now, in the portion we're looking at, he's going to make the final charge. That's why I call it a summary indictment of guilt, legal terms. Because that's exactly what Paul does. And then in his closing statement, he's going to have the final proof. This is something of a part of the closing statement. That's 3.10-18. through We'll get into verse 10 this morning, and that's about as far as we'll make it. And then we'll continue looking at the final proof. The final proof comes from the final authority. Where does the final proof come from? Notice the section. You know it. You're timid this morning, intimidated, new location, can't think. (laughs) Final proof, where does it come from? Scripture itself. It's a series of quotations. In other words, this is what the final authority says, the ultimate judge. This is what he says in the Old Testament, the law. Uh, So beginning in verse 10, he lays out Scripture after Scripture all the way through verse 18. So we have the final proof. And then his closing statement is verses 19 through 20. So that kind of summarizes it in a context of a courtroom, and in reality, Paul is laying out a spiritual courtroom scene in the book of Romans, and he's going to continue this throughout. There's a solution to the problem of man standing condemned. That's the decision of the court. After it's all said and done, man stands condemned. Under wrath. So he's kind of completed the cycle. He starts, man is under wrath, condemned, and after the evidence is presented, after the defense is dealt with, and after the final proof and a closing statement, after all is said and done, man should feel condemned. Kind of a depressing story. Now, I'm going to give you why this is valuable for you and I as believers as well. I think it's written primarily it's written for the believer to understand what the situation of the unbeliever is so that we might be able to better share the gospel. So that's kind of the analogy that uh, I think that we have here, and it serves as a review. So in verse 9, Paul asks the question, after he's presented the evidence and after he has basically dealt with all of the issues of a courtroom, What then? This is the indictment. What is the conclusion we should come to? What does the evidence point to? What then? Are we better than they? Now it's interesting that he includes himself here. He accused Jewish people in chapter 2 of violating God's law, violating even uh, the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the latter part, dealing with circumcision and they don't practice what they preach they stand condemned as well and the question would be asked and this is part of the protest or it's almost related to it are we better than the gentiles paul including himself in a jewish thinking so it kind of stems from what he said before or the last section of what he said and and by the way the little phrase are we better than they is one word in the Greek text. And it only occurs right here. So, the, the meaning is, is not crystal clear. This is probably a good translation. Another possible translation is similar to what we looked at at the beginning of uh, chapter three, where the issue was raised. What is the advantage of the Jew? It is very similar in meaning. And it could have that idea, but it deals with probably a Jewish mindset who had a superior attitude and thought that he was exempt. So Paul is emphasizing even that audience or that portion of the audience. The Gentile was easier to convince. It was the Jew that would resist this more. Now the human heart is such that Gentiles as well resist, but the Jews even more so. So the answer is not at all. There's no advantage when it comes to right standing before God. So that's the answer. And now he's going to give the indictment for we have already charged. There's the indictment. He's already made the charge. That's kind of a summary of chapter one, beginning in verse 18, all the way to verse eight of chapter three. He's laid out all the evidence already. And what is that evidence? That both Jews and Greeks, and we've talked about this before, when he uses the word Greeks here, he's talking about in the Roman Empire, the Greek culture kind of dominated, so a common way of referring to non-Jewish people was Greeks. So he's talking about Gentiles or non-Jews. Everyone else. So, He's already charged that both Jews and Greek, in other words, all of humanity, are under sin. There's the kind of a summary, brief statement of the indictment. We can bring it all together, and I'll do that in another slide here, by summarizing some of the main points in terms of this idea of all under sin. We'll get to that in a moment. So, when he's talking about Jew and Gentile, I've already given you a little review of it. So in the outline, beginning in verse 18, the guilt of all of humanity focused on the Gentile, and the Jew would be sitting back and say, Preach it, Paul. We agree 100%. Those Gentiles are depraved. That goes from verse 18 to verse 32. They've got your revelation. They've rejected it. So that's a summary. That's the Greek. Now he reverses the order in verse 9. But the guilt of all of humanity, but it also includes the guilt of the Jews. And they had a self-righteous attitude. So what does he say in chapter 2, verse 1? Therefore, you are without excuse. And for the first time, he addresses them in the first person. You are without excuse. He's already condemned the Gentile without excuse. And now he's saying the same thing to the, the Jewish audience. Every man of you who passes judgment, and they were just standing there saying, yeah, we agree, Paul. Gentiles are depraved, and he is kind of reversing it. You're passing judgment on you, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. There's that word, and we looked at that in some detail when we were in that passage So he's laying out the guilt of the Jews, running all the way through verse 8. And that brings us back to where we mentioned earlier, 3, 9 through 20, the guilt of all humanity. This is the conclusion. So we have the summary indictment of guilt in verse 9. And then he says, we've already charged both Jew and Gentile are under sin. How has he charged that? What does he say in verse 18? All of humanity is under wrath. So when he's saying all are under sin, that's a summary of everything that he's talked about. What does he say in verse 20? All of humanity, particularly Gentiles, are without excuse. They've had adequate revelation. They've rejected it. They're under sin. They're without excuse. They're guilty, essentially. What does he say in verse 24, 26, and 28? We have the repeating phrase, God gave them up, kind of a very horrible thought in terms of a culture or even in terms of man. So apart from God working in a heart to draw them to himself, he's going to deal with all these issues later on. Man stands abandoned by God. And cultures experience the consequences of that. We talked a little bit about that. Cultures decline, degenerate, and they experience the wrath of God. Remember, the wrath of God is present tense. So you can observe it in a culture. You can see it work out. Part of the way God pours out wrath is by letting people experience the consequences of their sin. That's also chapter 1, verses 24 through uh, the end of the chapter. A list of things that people fall into that is a consequence of rejecting God and actually a consequence of God allowing them to reap consequences. So we see that in that place. That's what it means to be under sin. So all the details we looked at there. It also says in verse 32, they are worthy of death. This is kind of one of the concluding things he says in the chapter. To be under sin means that humanity is worthy of death little phrase out of verse 32. In chapter 2, again, we've already said, without excuse, 2-1. Now he's dealing with the Jewish audience. He also says they are self-condemned. They condemn themselves. There's condemnation. To be under sin includes even self-condemnation. We also have in verse 5, the Jews are storing up Wrath. That's what it means to be under sin. We looked at that little phrase. So you can see verse 9 is somewhat of a summary of everything we've already looked at. Gives you a good review here. And verse 8, they're condemned. That's the conclusion. That's the end of the presentation of his evidence. And now he's charging them with a final charge, if you will, using the analogy of a courtroom. That's what it means to be under sinned. Essentially, the bottom line is man stands condemned before a holy God. That's why we title this whole subsection Condemnation of All. So, now in verse 10 of chapter 3, he's going to give the biblical or scriptural proof. Proof of depravity. And it's kind of a summary. He just gathers together, he strings together Old Testament passages beginning with Psalm 14, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but let me kind of introduce this whole thing to you. So 10 through 18 is the scriptural proof. He's going to do deal with virtually every area of who we are as human beings. He's going to start with our character. That's verses 10 through 12. And he's going to show and define for us, I believe, what depravity means. The concept, the biblical doctrine of depravity. He's going to outline it for us. And this is one of the most extensive passages in all of Scripture. In fact, the key passage of all of Scripture, where it lays out and gives us the details concerning what depravity is all about. So let me introduce this concept of Depravity. And again, just a reminder, we've already talked about the first part. We have the final proof 10 through 18 using the analogy of a courtroom. And as we normally do, we look at the text by including the specific context. We look at it sentence by sentence. And you might even notice, is this even the beginning of a sentence here, even though it fills up the slide? No. Where does the sentence begin? It begins where? It begins after the the second question in verse 9. And you notice verse 9 ends with a semicolon, at least New American Standard. And if you read through it, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, semicolon. Verse 11, there is none who understands, comma, there is none who seeks for God, semicolon. And he's stringing together Old Testament passages. That's why it's all capitalized. Then verse 12, and this is very definitely out of Psalm 14, and it's repeated in 53, I believe. All have turned aside, comma, together they have become useless, semicolon. There is none who does good, comma. There is not even one. There's the period. Long sentence, so we'll break it down, and it'll take us a couple of weeks to get through it. But that's the sentence, so we'll break it down. As it is written, that gives you the tie or the clue that he's dealing with Scripture here. Common phrase that not only Paul, but Jesus himself, as it is written, and then they'll quote either a passage as it is in the Old Testament, or in some cases they'll say as as it's written, and they might summarize a passage. And I think That's what we have to begin with. I'll talk about that a little bit more. And in some cases, when uh, we have that little phrase or we have a quotation or a reference to the Old Testament, sometimes it's just an application and there's some similarities between what the New Testament writer is developing based on a concept or something in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's not a verbatim quotation and sometimes it's not a fulfillment The word fulfillment is sometimes used as well. The New Testament, when it uses Old Testament passages, has some flexibility in the way that they use it. In fact, we do the same thing. Sometimes you'll refer to a concept and you'll refer to some incident in the Old Testament. You're not quoting it. You're referring to maybe a doctrine or an idea. The New Testament does the same thing. And sometimes we'll quote a passage and quote it as accurately as we can from memory. And the writers of the New Testament sometimes do that. And sometimes you will quote the New American Standard, right? Most of you use it. Some of you may quote out of the NIV or you might use the King James. Well, the writers of the New Testament do the same thing. Sometimes they quote the Masoretic Text, which was available in the first century. Sometimes they quote the what? What? Somebody remember what translation? Common translation in the first century. Septuagint. In fact, remember in the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews always quotes out of, remember, Septuagint. Yeah, so the writers do similar things as to what we do, except they are inspired. And the way they handle the Old Testament is in some ways, in some areas, is restricted to them under inspiration. We can't take the same liberty. And we'll talk about that some more later. But as it is written, so he's referring, and what he's going to do now is, quote, a series of passages, and in some cases, not quote, but allude to or summarize. And in fact, the very first statement here, if you look at the following... The following seems to clearly come out of Psalm 14. But it doesn't have the little phrase, there is none righteous. So I think what he starts off with is he's going to just kind of summarize that passage. And then he's going to allude more directly to the passage in that that follows. I'll try to show you that later on. We probably won't get to that today, but we'll talk some more about it. So, as it is written, is very important, There is none righteous. Everything he's going to talk about is going to deal with this relationship that uh, we lack in terms of God. We are standing before a holy God in a state of unrighteousness or without righteousness. And there is none that has a right standing before God. Obviously the only exception is God himself, because he's righteous, so that would include Jesus Christ, who is God, who is righteous, but all of humanity apart from Christ, there is none righteous. So we'll talk about that. So what he's going to begin here is to lay out this very, very important doctrine of depravity. So let me introduce it to you. And this will probably take up most of the rest of our time here. First of all, there are a lot of misconceptions of what the meaning of that little phrase is theologically. Obviously, the word doesn't occur or the phrase doesn't occur in Scripture. It's, it's a summation. It's a description of who we are apart from Christ. Because in Christ, we have been declared righteous. Christ has reversed everything that we're going to talk about. So this passage should give us an appreciation, first of all, for what Christ has done for us. He has removed that condition of unrighteous state. We can stand before him by faith and faith alone. Now, the passage here doesn't tell us about that. It's after we get through the passage that Paul begins to deal with the solution kind of summarizing it so that we not get too depressed and leave here crying. Okay, So what is this idea of total depravity? The phrase might imply or might make you think that it's saying that we are as wicked as we can be. That's not what the phrase is trying to convey. There certainly are people that are not as wicked as they can be. Some there are that have degenerated to that point, but Most people, in fact, probably most people you know, are not as wicked as they can be, so that's not a description of total depravity. It's not that we are less than human, like an inanimate object, like a stone or something. So the idea does not diminish humanity, it's a description of all humanity. Thirdly, it's not simply lacking in knowledge. In fact, the unbeliever has knowledge. That's what the first part of chapter 1 of Romans says. God has revealed himself. So all of humanity has received a revelation. He knows something of God. We talked about in reality, there are no atheists in reality. An atheist is just someone who, in verse 18, has suppressed the truth so far that he has deceived himself into thinking. And he's come to the conclusion, the wrong conclusion, that there is no God. In fact, Psalm uh, 14 begins with that. So there is knowledge. It's not that he's lacking in knowledge. Now, he's lacking in true knowledge and spiritual knowledge that will lead to salvation, but not knowledge in general. It's not lacking in a conscience. He doesn't have the idea that the conscience is totally seared and totally destroyed. Depravity doesn't mean that. doesn't mean that the unbeliever or the depraved person is incapable of kindness towards others. Some of the nicest people are unbelievers. They're attempting to please God by their acts of kindness. So that's not a description of depravity, incapable of of kindness toward others. So, is this the picture of total depravity, based on what I just said? Yes and no. (laughs) Yes and no. This is a picture of someone that is, in fact, probably at the end of wickedness. So, this is a picture of total depravity, but it's not the complete picture. So, we'll put a check mark there. What about this one? Is this a picture of total depravity? Yes. (laughs) Those of you that had kids, right? (laughs) Oh, she's so cute. The Bible says she is totally depraved. All right? So we'll put a check mark there. So what does it mean? Let's describe it biblically. So the description of it is man is wholly inclined to evil continually. That's a description of the Westminster Catechism. In other words, our nature is such that we are inclined towards evil. Any of you have to teach your kids to say no? no. <laughs> Any of you have to teach your kids to do bad things? hit your brother. <laughs> <laughs> Children are inclined in that direction. You have to teach them otherwise. You have to train them. Otherwise, their nature will carry them because they are depraved. Even the cute little girl there. Her inclination is to do evil. Now, Not the full extent necessarily, but little things, little distortions, little lies sometimes, little deception, whatever. That's a picture of depravity. So another description would be totally unable to do anything good spiritually. That's depravity, total depravity. Another description, having no ability to gain anything from God. In other words, we cannot gain anything from God. There's no goodness in us that warrants or merits God treating us any different than a man's son. So we are totally depraved. We can't earn. That's the whole point of the book of Romans, the whole point of Galatians. There's a tendency within us to try to do things that merit a standing before God. But we can't. There's nothing we can do. That's a description of depravity. We could also say that when we talk of depravity, we're saying our whole being is affected by sin. Every aspect of who we are is corrupted by sin. That's what we mean by total depravity. In other words, there's not an area that has been left unaffected. And we're going to see that in this passage that we're going to look at. And I've started it on your outline sheet there, kind of the outline within an outline. I'm giving you different aspects of what total depravity means. In terms of how we are totally affected by sin. Mary Lee. So, what you would be saying here then, if we are, quote, totally affected by sin, is that the fact that we are not vile, wicked, horrible people like you can pull up an image. We're not a man, Is only because God's grace is at work in our lives, keeping us, but we could push it aside if we were inclined. And just go and become as wicked as a Manson or a Weinstein or whoever you want to whoever you want to put a face on, exactly. Yeah, we there is such a thing in scripture that restrains sin. In fact, Second Thessalonians two speaks of the restrainer being removed, but God has built in in fact one of the greatest restraints and institutions that restrain sin is the family, mothers and fathers. Restraining sin in their children, putting them on a different path than what they are wholly inclined towards. And that's part of training, that's part of development, part of discipline, which is very, very necessary. So, God has, in fact, as you have pointed out, Mary Lee, built into the culture things that restrain that. Another thing is conscience. God has built conscience that is designed to restrain us from going all the way. So those that go all the way, their consciences have been seared, essentially, and damaged to a point of no repair. He has also built government. Romans chapter 13, we'll see that. Government is designed to restrain sin. That's the main function of government. We'll see that in chapter 13. So, when we speak of totally depravity, we're talking about our inclinations. What left Naturally, without restraint, where we will go, without conscience, without training, without parents, without government, without government, there's anarchy. So it's a gift of God to restrain. Holy Spirit, that's the restrainer in Second Thessalonians 2, restrains using conscience, using everything else. So total depravity is that inclination. It also is that we have nothing within us to commend ourselves to God. We can't do anything spiritual. Thirdly, no ability to gain anything from God. And then, fourthly here, every area is affected. Now, you'll notice that the outline sheet only goes through verse 12. And on that, you'll see that when we speak of total depravity, it involves the spirit It involves the heart, it involves the mind, and the will. Now, on the next outline sheet that begins in verse 13, we will also see that it affects speech, emotions, our body, and even all of our actions. So that's what we mean by total depravity, that it affects every area of life in terms of the unbeliever. Now, before we look at the details of the text... Let me uh, outline why this is so important and why we need to learn these things and know the the detail here. First of all, it uh, tells us the nature of the unbeliever. What is the unbeliever like? Now, it's important to know the nature of mankind in general, particularly the unbelieving world, in order to more effectively be able to reach them in order to be able to share the gospel. If we don't understand what the nature of man is, then uh, we will not understand how to present the gospel. In fact, part of presenting the gospel is convincing the unbeliever that they have a need. And if you do not understand how desperate the unbeliever is, then your sharing of the gospel is actually deficient to that extent. So... This doctrine is important, first and foremost, in understanding the nature of the unbelieving heart. But secondly, this was written to believers. And there's an application that we can draw and an understanding very directly. We can see what we are like apart from Christ. And when we received Christ, we received a new nature But the old nature was not removed. We still have that lost old nature. And this is a description of what the flesh is like, what the old nature is like. Paul is going to go into a little detail dealing with a believer, a person that has been justified in Romans chapter 7. And you see the effects of depravity on the believer who has received justification. So all of these characteristics we still have in the old nature. This is what brings us down as believers. Now, the whole Christian life is designed to walk in the spirit that we may be able to put to death that old nature. And that's part of what the book of Romans will deal with as well. So the second reason this is good to review and to understand is we need to understand who we are and what we are in the flesh. We are as capable of doing everything that the unbeliever does in the flesh. The third reason is it makes clear why salvation must be by grace because there's nothing in us that we can do to earn a right standing or to earn salvation in any way. It is totally by grace. In other words, only because of what God has done, and nothing pertaining to what we have done, brings us into a saving relationship. And all of that is simply by faith. So it shows why salvation must be by grace, and why salvation is necessary Because apart from it, we remain in this total depraved condition. So, that's your brief little introduction to this doctrine of total depravity. Let's get started in the passage itself. And in uh, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous I take that as something of a summary statement. Our time is about up here, but let me just briefly make some comments and I'll expand that a little bit more next week. But I take it as something of a summary of everything else he's going to talk about. The condition of being in a state of unrighteousness. What does that mean? And I think it goes to the very heart of who we are, the very heart of our character and I'm going to compare it, this portion here, to Psalm 14, because I think part of the passage is directly quoted out of there. But I think what Paul does with this little phrase, there is none righteous, he's summarizing essentially the essence of Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And it's also a summary, I believe, of total depravity. So, what we could say is... That total depravity touches at the very essence of who we are. And as I said, everything is affected by sin, including and foremost our spirits. And when he says there's none righteous, I think he's dealing with who we are spiritually. Now, another passage where Paul describes depravity is in Ephesians 2. And we could see this as somewhat parallel to... This Romans passage, it's briefer, but in the first three verses, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, I think that is spiritual deadness, and notice it's in the past tense. He's writing to the Ephesians who have received justification, they've received salvation, but in the past, before they trusted in Christ, they were dead spiritually, spiritually dead. And that's a description of depravity, and that's in our spirit. Now, he's going to expand that in the next few verses, spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So depravity looks at how we have lived. We live in conformity or in accordance with the world. Secondly, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that's Satan, prince of the power of the air. Depravity also involves the influence and the effects and temptation of sin by Satan himself. So we have the world, we have Satan, and thirdly, we have the flesh among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we have three elements described in Ephesians 2 1 through 3 the world, the influence of the world, Satan himself, but it also involves the flesh and the mind and our very nature, leaving us in a condition being by nature children of wrath. And it says, even as the rest, in other words, all of humanity, here's the universal aspect to it, which we have in verse 10 as well. So there is none righteous, not even one, the universality of it, all of humanity. So total depravity touches everyone and that's the emphasis of this passage. That's what Paul is trying to demonstrate in Romans chapter 3. So we are spiritually dead. And uh, that's probably a good place to stop for today. And we'll pick up at that point next week. So our concluding statement for today, we cannot do effective evangelism without a proper understanding of man's need. And this is exactly what total depravity attempts theologically to describe, is our condition apart from Christ, a condition that is affecting our total being. It involves our spirit, our heart, our mind, our will, our speech, our emotions, our body, and everything that comes out of that, which would be summarized by our actions. So we cannot do effective evangelism without a proper understanding of man's need. Who wants to close force, Connie. Five, I think on from that surgery and well And the treatment. I do watch over the body during that whole time in your life.